Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland Fund. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. I'm Mike and Scott, and this is Changing Tastes, a special production from The Pulse. We're a health and science show and podcast. Let me ask you something. Do you like lima beans? Lima bean? Uh, if they're mixing with other things, not, not solo. Do you like lima beans? I'll eat them. Not my favorite bean. No. I do not. No. Not at all. When did you have them before? When I was a child in a dish called succotash, which is lima beans with corn. The taste of the lima beans was sort of chalky. Chalkiness, maybe? It's too mushy for me. How about you? The only time I can remember eating lima beans was in school when they served it on the cafeteria menu. They were overcooked. (laughs) Yeah? Yes, overcooked. Too mushy. Mushy beans. Kind of stringy on the outside, I would say, or like a little grainy in the inside and just a dull greenish color, I guess. Unappealing. 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 Harsh. But at a small Pennsylvania farm, lima beans are the star of the show. I think most people only know limas as being the big frozen green bean, and they're much more than that. So... So changed my mind. For starters, these beans look beautiful. They come in all kinds of colors. Pretty little, very dark. Almost looks like a gem. And they are part of an experiment to find crops that can stand up to the stressors related to climate change. G26451, that's a vining pole type. That's from Panama. Growing them is one thing, but then you still have to get people to eat them. We are hoping to not only see what varieties grow best here, but also see what varieties taste the best. For lunch today, we had um, lima bean hummus, which makes the creamiest hummus ever. Could lima beans go from meh? to amazing in the minds of consumers. I mean, if kale can pull this off, why not, right? So many different forces shape what we eat, what we find in the grocery store. Consumer tastes and marketing for sure, but also climate change, global supply chains, nutrition science, health concerns, and social media influencers. On this special episode, we'll take a look at what's for dinner and why. We'll find out how seed oils ended up becoming a lightning rod. We'll taste a futuristic green with self-proclaimed superpowers. And we'll meet one physician who is trying to convince people to eat more organ meats. And another one who says, stay away from anything marketed as health food. Let's start with lima beans. They may not be a favorite right now, but they have a big potential advantage, being more resistant to the stressors of climate change. Like other legumes, growing them is also restorative for the soil. Lindsay Lazarski looked into a new collaboration between scientists, farmers, and foodies who are trying to give lima beans a makeover. Come on, let's go out into the field. Wow. Grab your gloves, bud. My first visit to Plowshare Farms in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, is on a misty spring day last May. A long brown field freshly raked awaits a dozen volunteers. Today we're planting lima beans. We are planting 
nine different varieties of lima beans. Farmer Teddy Moynihan hands over lima bean seeds to the volunteers, and I'm surprised by their colors. Some are shades of white, others are red, pinkish brown, and speckled. And with these, they say we want them spaced five feet apart. Teddy says he's planted green beans, garbanzo beans, and a bunch of heirloom dry beans. But it's been years since he's planted limas. And the last time, it did not go well. Just a small planting, but certainly not a very successful one. So this is new to us. This new planting is an experiment, part of a four-year research project out of the University of California, Davis, that includes seven institutions in six states. It's a collaboration with scientists, producers, chefs, and small-scale farmers like Teddy, all to unlock the genetic and consumer potential of lima beans in the U.S. Part of the idea is that lima beans are more resilient to climate change than the more popular common beans like string beans, kidney beans, and navy beans. We don't just think about climate change. We experience climate change out here. Teddy started Plowshare Farms about 10 years ago. He raises chickens, pigs, and grows a whole bunch of berries and vegetables that he sells to restaurants in Philadelphia. He says he got into farming because he wanted to eat more locally and grow food in a sustainable way. And it would, in some tiny infinitesimal way, mitigate climate change. But the irony is that we are a very susceptible industry to climate change. So we have, just in the past few years, seen hotter temperatures, than we'd seen even just 10 years ago when we started, drier years, and it's not always just warming. We had a frost just two nights ago, May 18th, and if there are crops that are more resistant to that, they could help not just us, but other farmers in the area make a living in the face of a changing climate. What a great planting crew here. Sarah Doley is a research scientist working on the project. And she's not just doing the science. She's out here getting her hands dirty, putting seeds into the ground. She tells me she never cared much for lima beans growing up. I just remember them being chalky and kind of flavorless as a kid. But now she may be their biggest champion. Sarah is bean curator for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, And yes, that is her actual job. And she's always looking to discover or rediscover different bean varieties. I'm in charge of making sure that they are safe, growing, and then distributed to researchers around the world. Sarah even has a purse that has Bean Queen embroidered on it. She says lima beans are a climate-smart crop. Wild lima beans have adapted to grow in hotter, drier, wetter, colder more stressful climates than wild common bean. And so we think that lima bean cultivated types that we grow could also be more stress tolerant. Lima beans have robust root systems that can go deeper than other plants. And so in times of drought or nutrient deficiencies, they can still access water and nutrients in the soil. And now researchers are trying to develop a variety that could do well everywhere in the Northeast of the United States and stand up to some of the climate change-related stressors. Lima beans naturally grow in Central and South America. A lot of lima beans are photosensitive, meaning they need 12 hours of light and 12 hours of darkness, long nights to flower. And at this northern latitude, that doesn't happen until September. And if a bean doesn't flower until September, you don't get a pod or a seed to form before the frost comes. And so they're not adapted to growing here. So researchers crossed a variety from warmer climates with some that do well here. So you get that exotic stress-tolerant genetics, 
with the right photo period so they could grow here. So we are literally rubbing flower parts together and hoping that the progeny, the next generation, inherit the good traits from both. Farmer Teddy Moynihan looks out onto the field as the wind picks up and the volunteers make it to the end of the row. Just about the last lima bean got put in the ground and covered up. The rain started and we'll go home and spend the rest of the weekend inside and those lima beans should be germinating by early next week. And now he's thinking about the next challenge, getting people to eat and actually like lima beans. People often associate limas with maybe the worst bean they ever had or mom's succotash. Every farmer wants to grow something that's easier to grow, but all farmers also need a market. Sarah, the bean curator, says right now she has about 2,000 kinds of lima beans, including wild and domesticated. 700 of those are available to the public. They are delicious, they're buttery, they're creamy, and there's all sorts of flavor, taste, nutritional variation, too. When I come back to the farm four months later in September, the lima bean seeds have grown into lush plants that hang on trellises like a big green curtain across the field. In the barn, two long rows of tables with white linens are set up for a lima bean dinner. Teddy has teamed up with some local chefs to show people just how delicious lima beans can be. But first, Teddy gives his guests a tour of the farm. So here are the limas. This is, this is what we all are here for. And we picked these pretty clean for the dinner tonight. So He grabs a pod about the size of a small banana and cracks it open. Inside are fresh green lima beans. And I'm surprised at the sweetness. Even on some of these, I mean, they're starchy, but even on some of these fresh ones, just having them completely raw out of the pod, there's just a little bit of sweetness to it. (laughs) Outside of the barn, the chefs are busy preparing the meal. Chef Valerie Irwin stirs a big pot of creamy, whipped lima beans. So I cooked the lima beans until they were really soft and then pureed them with butter, and they kind of taste like mashed potatoes. The dinner's trying to showcase the lima bean and pay tribute to the American South. Chef April McGregor is originally from Mississippi and spent a lot of time in North Carolina before coming to Philly. There's, I feel like, a lot to be learned from um, the South about lima beans. We refer to them as butter beans, but they are a very prized summer vegetable. We particularly love them fresh, shelled, like out of the garden. On the menu, there's lima beans in every course. The southern vegetable plate, we did like a tomato stack with cream corn and lima beans and cornbread and lima bean flour turned into like an Indian style um, uttapam, like a rice and bean flour pancake with some like spicy chutneys. We're having chicken confit with mashed lima beans and tomato gravy as the entree. There's even a lima bean creme caramel flan with fresh berries. April is hoping to change some people's minds and misconceptions about lima beans. The secret is people think about them from our bad experiences in like institutional food settings. But for lunch today, we had lima bean hummus, which makes the creamiest hummus ever. So if you think about their softness and their succulence as like a positive quality instead of like in a watery, unseasoned kind of institutional version, then we can really just like go with that, you know, and make it a positive attribute instead of a negative. As the guests filled the barn, the sun went down over the farm. And any memories of those mushy school cafeteria lima beans seem to have faded away. Unexpectedly delicious summer supper on a plate. Well, we were talking about how lima beans get such a bad rap, and then you taste these, and they're so creamy and nice and 
just really good. They did a fantastic job combining a lot of different spices and herbs with things that I couldn't identify but were all delicious. Like those little pancakes made from lima flour is not something I ever had thought of or heard of before. The first time I'm eating lima beans that's no frozen in ShopRite's freezer and it's really nice. It's, it's a nice surprise. I'm glad I learned about lima beans today. That story was reported by Lindsay Lazarski. Coming up on Changing Tastes, is much of the food we eat even really food? It's commodity crops broken down into carbs, fats and protein, and then emulsified, flavored, textured, and then they, they press them out into a different shape and bake them or fry them or whatever. A physician is investigating the health impact of ultra-processed foods. That's still to come. On the TED Radio Hour, in the middle school cafeteria, Tai Tashiro always sat with his equally nerdy buddies. The socially awkward kids who were the furthest thing from cool. And he often wondered, Why am I so socially awkward and what am I going to do about that? Now Tai is a psychologist and expert on awkwardness, and he has some answers. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. What's happening on NPR Podcasts? More neighborhoods and more perspectives. The more of the world that you hear, the more you hear the world as it really is. NPR Podcasts. More voices, all ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Climate change fuels hurricanes. China promises to stop. The big lie persists. Butterflies have hearts. Singers die. Plumbers win. Nurses persevere. Your world speaks. We listen. NPR Podcasts. More voices, all ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Big news stories don't always break on your schedule. But with the NPR app, news, culture, and podcasts are ready when you want them. In your pocket. Download the NPR app today. This is Changing Tastes, a special production from The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. Health concerns and dietary information play a big role in terms of what's on our plates. But the list of foods that are bad for us seems to change all the time in pretty dramatic ways. Eggs are bad. Eggs are good. Eat margarine instead of butter. No, don't eat margarine. Low fat, no fat. Hold on, make that no carbs. You know the drill. A lot of our dietary guidelines come from the nutrition arm of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Think of the old food pyramid and now my plate. But these days, food health trends are increasingly shaped by influencers on social media. And right now, many of them are targeting seed oils. It's an umbrella term for canola, sunflower, grapeseed, soybean, corn, and other oils. These seed oils were originally created as machine lubricants, and they should have stayed that way. If you walk down the middle aisles at any grocery store, you're always going to find products that have processed inflammatory oils, and you cannot escape them. You know, there is a food that is way worse than sugar. How did seed oil, or what we sometimes call vegetable oil, go from kitchen staple to health enemy number one? Liz Tung looked into the origins of the anti-seed oil movement and tried to find out if we should avoid consuming these oils. This whole seed oil thing really blew up in May of 2020. 
and I track down why. Thank you. Please sit down. This is an episode of the podcast Club Random with Bill Maher from May 22nd, 2020. Okay, my next guest is a family physician and best-selling author of The Fat Burn Fix. Please welcome Dr. Kate Shanahan. The topic of their conversation was metabolic health and its effects on our ability to fight off COVID. The best thing that you can do to boost your immune system is to stop eating these seed oils. Now, remember, this was in May 2020, just a few months into the pandemic, and people were shell-shocked especially by the deaths of young, supposedly healthy people. On the podcast, Kate boldly argued that part of the reason these young people were dying was because of how the seed oils stored in their fat were affecting their immune response, and that those who'd stayed away from seed oils were not dying. The idea that we could protect ourselves by cutting out seed oils was comforting. At least that's my guess about why the message took off at that moment. That and the fact that for maybe the first time, it had a national mainstream platform. But where did Kate Shanahan come up with the idea? To find out, I got in touch. I'm Dr. Kate Shanahan. I'm a family medicine doctor. And before I went to medical school, I trained in biochemistry at Cornell. Kate got interested in nutrition decades ago when she was struggling with a strange, debilitating medical issue that no one could figure out. And nothing helped me get better. I had pain in my knee and I had swelling in my knee and I had fevers if I walked too much. Kate was already a physician at the time, and she tried everything medicine had to offer, including surgery, all with no effect. And then Kate's husband gave her a book called Spontaneous Healing by Dr. Andrew Weil. Very promising title. I really needed some healing and I needed some hope. The book takes a holistic approach to healing the body focused on nutrition. And one thing in particular caught Kate's interest. I feel like the first thing I read in there was like destiny for me to read the words essential fatty acids. Because as a biochemist, I knew that these things were very important regulatory chemicals in every cell in our body. And I hadn't really learned about them in terms of something that I could eat in my diet. Over the next few months, Kate did a deep dive into the biochemistry of different fats and how they affect the body. And she came to believe that a lot of what she'd been taught about fats isn't true. For instance, that saturated fat, which is in animal foods like butter, cheese, lard, and red meat, are a quick road to heart attack city. What about the relationship between saturated fat and obesity and diabetes? Well, it doesn't exist. I was skeptical. Come on, I thought. Everyone knows that butter and cheese are the fastest way to clog your arteries. But Kate told me we eat less saturated fat now than we did in the 50s. And yet, obesity rates have skyrocketed. Seed oils, by contrast, have become a growing part of our diet since the early 20th century. Then they really exploded around World War II. And now, they are in so many things that we eat every day. Bread, chips, cookies, cereals, coffee creamer, energy bars, almond milk, even baby formula. And so with all this research, Kate came to the conclusion that vegetable oils could be making her and all of us sick. And we're even contributing to a slew of serious health issues. Type 2 diabetes, heart attacks, certainly obesity, childhood learning disorders, rates of disability, a variety of different types of cancers, breast cancer, prostate cancer, childhood cancers, Pretty much 
you name it. So how exactly does Kate say seed oils are doing this? Here's the Cliff's Notes version. Seed oils are high in polyunsaturated fats, or PUFAs. The PUFAs are not the problem by themselves. We actually need some of them to function. But, Kate says, PUFAs readily oxidize or change in molecular structure when they're subjected to the heat and chemical stresses of industrial processing. And so when that happens, and when we cook with them, and when we eat them, they deteriorate into toxins and they cause a kind of cellular imbalance that makes everything that the cell is trying to do more difficult. That cellular imbalance, she says, that is oxidative stress. Oxidative stress leads to inflammation, and inflammation can lead to chronic illnesses like diabetes, cancer, and Alzheimer's, along with insulin resistance, which can lead to weight gain. Part two of how she says seed oils promote weight gain has to do with the way they damage our metabolic systems. Essentially, she says, when we eat a lot of seed oils, PUFAs become stored in our fat cells, making them, quote-unquote, invisible as a source of fuel and less effective at serving as fuel to power our bodies. That, in turn, makes us crave sugar, which again leads to weight gain. Kate started talking and writing about this stuff almost 20 years ago. But she says now that the conversation about seed oils is being amplified everywhere, it's also getting distorted and misrepresented, especially the reasons why seed oils are bad for us. These days, a lot of anti-seed oil messages from nutrition influencers are all about the quote-unquote bad fats in these oils, omega-6s, that they end up decreasing the good fats in your body, omega-3s, and that this is the real culprit behind inflammation. I laid the claims out for Kate and asked what she thought. They don't make any sense. Because they missed the keystone of Kate's overall framework oxidative stress. And until you get to that bottom layer of the biochemical issue, you're missing the hugest, most important part of the problem. But there's another side to this debate. You might call it the mainstream side, represented in this case by Dariush Mozafarian. I'm a cardiologist and director of the Food is Medicine Institute at Tufts University. Darius got interested in researching oils and dietary fats back in medical school. Because this was at the height of the low-fat diet recommendations and everybody was afraid of fat. And the more I started reading, I realized there were so many healthy fats that fats had incredible positive biologic effects. I asked him about this idea I saw coming up over and over again in influencer videos, that omega-6 fatty acids, which are pro-inflammatory, were crowding out omega-3s, which are anti-inflammatory, and that that is leading to inflammation in the body. Darius told me it kind of makes sense on paper, but that the research never bore it out. And so there have been many, many, many studies of these oils in humans, many studies, more trials probably of these oils in humans than any other dietary factor, period. And if you look at all of the, the, the trials, randomized control trials, observational studies, there's very consistent evidence that these oils are beneficial. Those benefits, Darius says they lower LDL cholesterol, the so-called bad cholesterol, along with triglycerides. They increase HDL cholesterol, the good cholesterol, 
they don't cause diabetes and, in fact, are beneficial for glucose control and insulin production. Randomized control trials in people, generally they show that there's no effect on inflammation or inflammation actually gets better. So then why all this concern about seed oils? Derry says he thinks it came from three things. First, the discovery that trans fats, which were once common in vegetable oils, are terrible for us. But the industrial process that led to trans fats, partial hydrogenation, was banned by the FDA in 2015. Despite that, the bad reputation has stuck. Second, the omega-6, omega-3 idea, which, as he already mentioned, has been disproven. And third, a reversal in something a lot of us believed for decades, something that Kate had already told me, that saturated fats aren't actually bad for us. And that's actually true. That science is is accurate. Saturated fats from butter and lard aren't a healthy nutrient. There's not a health food that we should seek out, but they're also not really that bad for us and not toxic. I sort of think of them as neutral background foods. The problem, he says, is that as a result, a lot of people are turning back to butter and lard and vilifying the thing that once replaced them, seed oils. But what about Kate's specific idea that the real problem is oxidative stress, which in turn leads to inflammation and all kinds of chronic disease, obesity-related and otherwise? Darius didn't go deep on oxidative stress specifically, but he said studies have looked at inflammation, and there just isn't evidence that seed oils increase inflammation. So even if there's some theoretical mechanism whereby uh, a fatty acid could, in some circumstances, increase oxidative stress, the long-term evidence in humans from many, many studies, long-term trials, long-term observational studies, shows that on average, the overall effect of these fatty acids is positive and beneficial and not pro-inflammatory and not increasing oxidative stress. After talking to Darius, I reached back out to Kate to get her reaction. She argued that the studies Darius cited didn't capture the full picture because they weren't specifically tracking oxidative stress and that there's plenty of research backing up her claim that seed oils do cause inflammation and chronic illness. This is a debate that could probably go back and forth and back and forth. And unless you're a scientist, it's kind of hard to tell what's true. There have been a slew of articles, from everyone from Consumer Reports to the Harvard School of Public Health, making the case that seed oils are not bad for us. But despite that, the anti-seed oil message is clearly landing with millions of people. So why is that? To find out, I talked with Tim Caulfield. He's the chair of health law and policy at the University of Alberta in Canada and spends a lot of time debunking health-related misinformation. He cited a few reasons why he thinks the anti-seed oil movement became such a big deal. Number one, uh, it plays to that idea that there are evil forces at play, right? So, you know, there's this elite industrialized conspiracy that we all need to be suspicious of, right? Big food, big pharma. Suspicion of these big industries is part of the zeitgeist right now, he said. Which, I might add, given all we've learned about the opioid crisis or how food manufacturers influence nutrition research, may not be so irrational. Number two, it plays into our negativity bias. Because hearing that a common food we eat is bad for us is scary, and we're more likely to pay attention to information that frightens us. Number three, 
a lot of the discussion centers around toxins, which Tim says are like catnip in the health and wellness space. So as you know, seed oils are supposed to, you know, fill our bodies with toxins that we then need to detoxify. And um, that has so much intuitive appeal to it, right? So it's a simplistic, a simple and simplistic answer uh, to a complex problem, you know, chronic disease or, or perhaps just general malaise that you have. Finally, Tim says the voices delivering these messages, like Kate, are figures a lot of people feel they can believe in. They have the expertise of being doctors or dietitians without the stain of being associated with institutions that have lost a lot of public trust. And at the end of my reporting, trust is really the thing I kept coming back to. So often, what we decide to eat or not comes down not so much to one study or another, one finding or another, but to who we believe and who we trust. That was Liz Tong reporting. We're talking about the forces that shape what's on our plates. Physician Chris Van Tulliken has a different take on foods that make us sick. And to test out his hypothesis, he did an experiment on himself. He gave up his usual healthy diet for four weeks and pretty much ate like a teenager. It wasn't anything weird. I was just eating a very normal uh, American or British diet. Chris is an associate professor at University College London and also a broadcaster for the BBC. And for several years now, he's been interested in the health impact of ultra-processed foods. What is ultra-processed food? There's a very long formal definition. It's probably the longest formal scientific definition I have ever encountered in my scientific career. But it boils down to it's packaged food that contains at least one ingredient that you don't typically find in a domestic kitchen. And this is just a way of describing American industrially processed food. So we could also say that if a food has a health claim on the package, it's almost certain to be ultra-processed. If it says low-fat, supports your immune system, high in fiber, low in sodium, you know, good for weight loss, all of that stuff is ultra-processed. We could also define it as food made by transnational food corporations. Most of the food that the big companies that feed us make is ultra-processed. So for one month, Chris got 80% of his calories from ultra-processed foods. Microwave lasagna, frozen pizza, sugary cereal, but also stuff that sounded healthy, like protein bars. Because I wasn't trying to do supersize me. I was trying to see if we could get data and I didn't want to hurt myself. Chris put on a lot of weight. He was hungry all the time. He was constipated. He didn't sleep well. He felt anxious. And yet he wanted more of the foods he was eating. The food seemed like the solution rather than the problem. Chris writes about this experience in his new book, Ultra Processed People, the science behind food that isn't food. What is it about these foods that is the main concern? Is it the processing itself? Is it the shelf life? Is it the ingredients we don't know what they are? The first thing is, we don't need to know how something causes harm to be sure that it does. 
In the case of ultra-processed food, we now have over a thousand peer-reviewed studies in, in great journals linking them to negative health outcomes. And they're associated with cardiovascular disease, strokes and heart attacks, with cancers, all cancers, with metabolic diseases like type 2 diabetes, dementia, inflammatory diseases like Crohn's disease. So the epidemiology is very robust. When it comes to mechanism, obviously what everyone wants to know is, yeah, but how is it doing it? Mm -hmm. And there's a laundry list of about five or six kind of core ways that we think the food is driving harm. And at the top of that list is weight gain. This is one of the best studied aspects of this food, is it's incredibly soft. So if you go and eat a, a burger from a, a fast food joint or you eat a packet of crunchy chips or frozen microwave pizza or lasagna or a breakfast cereal, the texture is provides no resistance. There's lots of different textures. It might feel crunchy or rough or smooth or oily, but really it, it is these are calories it's very, very quick to consume. So you consume calories quicker than your body is able to release hormonal and, and neural signals that say, you know what, I'm done, I can stop eating. And so lots of people listening are going to have this experience with lots of these foods where you know you're finished, you sort of feel full or even maybe a bit ill, and yet you seem to keep eating. The thing underlying all the problems is the purpose of this food. And this may sound a little bit woolly, but I am a molecular biologist and, and this is incredibly uh, important to understand. The purpose of this food is to generate money for the companies that make it. And so everything about this food is dialed up so that you eat as much of it as often as is humanly possible. And so by altering all the different aspects of the food, whether it's the texture, the flavor enhancers, the taste profile, the salt-fat sugar ratios, the softness, the packaging, the fonts, the monkey on the box, all of it has been engineered to appeal to you as young as possible to get you to eat as much as possible. Chris says ultra-processed food products all have the same basic ingredients that come from five plants and three animals. So we eat rice, wheat, corn, soy, and palm for the oil. Sometimes there's a bit of sunflower oil, but there's seed oils. And then there's pigs, cows, and chickens. And that's the basic ingredients. Now, those things are destroyed down to their almost kind of molecular level. So you, whether you're eating a, a pizza or your protein energy bar or a frozen meal or a pack of chips, it's all the same basic ingredients. It's commodity crops broken down into carbs, fats, and protein, and then emulsified, flavored, textured, and then they press them out into a different shape and bake them or fry them or whatever. But it's, it's all the same. I wanted to ask you about the addictive properties of this food. Like, for example, when I eat salt and vinegar chips, mm. after about 10 of them, I'm done. Like, mm. I'm kind of already grossed out. Like, yeah. my mouth starts to suffer from yeah. all the, the sourness yeah. of it. You're literally developing mouth ulcers while you eat. Yes. So, so let me guess. So you, <laughs> you have 10 chips, then you gently fold the top of the pack over, you set it to one side, and you stop eating. I, I do the first part. I fold the top over, I put it aside, and then two minutes later, later, I yes, yeah. I unfold it. And then I might put it somewhere else yeah. in the drawer, and then I go into the drawer and I get them back out. And yeah. it's almost like yeah. it's like a demon. You have to eat it until yeah. it's gone, and then you're like, oh, thank God. <laughs> so there, there's been some 
there was a really wonderful paper published in the British Medical Journal by Ashley Gearhart and, and some other very brilliant co-authors saying, drawing together lots of the evidence that these products are addictive. And some sceptics, mainly funded by the food industry, said, this is ridiculous. You can't compare these everyday food products like breads and cookies to heroin, cocaine and tobacco and alcohol. Um, we have really good research from all kinds of different dimensions that shows that that comparison is valid. You know, when I look at my six-year-old, if we have the uh, chocolate-covered rice puffs in the in the kitchen, she can eat four or five adult portions for <laughs> breakfast. <laughs> and it's not normal. And if you deprive her on it of it, she will scream and shout and, you know, we destroyed the morning. So the the simple thing is, you know, you flush the cigarettes down the toilet, you don't have your cocaine in the house and you don't have your chocolate-covered cereal. I mean, the companies lean into this. So in the UK, we have, we have a cereal called Crave and it's little chocolate-filled envelopes of, you know, carbohydrate. I mean, it's... it's and then we have slogans like, once you pop, you can't stop. I mean, the companies know that they are making addictive products. And we will eventually see lawsuits. So it's proving very complicated to sue the food industry. But it's going to happen because diet-related disease has overtaken tobacco as the leading cause of early death globally. And people are really sick of it. Chris Van Tolliken is an associate professor at University College London. His new book is Ultra-Processed People, the science behind food that isn't food. If you want to listen to my whole interview with Chris, you can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Coming up, what would it take to interest people in less popular cuts of meat that often go to waste? Every single part of an animal's body is edible. Every single part. That's next. Instead of scrolling mindlessly, engage mindfully with the NPR app. With a mix of on-demand news, stories from this station, and your favorite podcast, you can relax without shutting off your brain. Download the NPR app today. From your car radio to your smart speaker, NPR meets you where you are in a lot of different ways. Now we're in your pocket. Download the NPR app today. Trials in multiple states, state and federal charges, plea deals, witness testimony, gag orders. The trials of former President Trump are really hard to keep straight. And that's why we created Trump's Trials, a weekly podcast where we break down the biggest news from each of his legal cases and what it all means for democracy in about 15 minutes. I'm Scott Detrow. Listen to Trump's Trials from NPR. The NPR app cuts through the noise, bringing you local, national, and global coverage. No paywalls, no profits, no nonsense. Download it in your app store today. This is Changing Tastes, a special production from The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about the major forces that shape what's on our plates. 
being climate smart is definitely a strong selling point for food products right now. A startup is trying to land their product at the perfect intersection of sustainability, nutrition, and taste. Back in February, before the current conflict, Susan Phillips traveled to Israel to try a tiny green that wants to become known as a nutrition powerhouse. At a warehouse in an older industrial section of South Tel Aviv, pink light emanates from metal boxes in what looks like a room full of computer servers. But in this windowless manufacturing space grows the world's tiniest green vegetable, sometimes called water lentils. Its official botanical name is Wolfia ariza. But the most common name for it is duckweed. Just a couple floors up in the warehouse, a colorful spread showcases the culinary potential of this rootless duckweed. Tastes good and healthy. It looks like bright green caviar sprinkled on different appetizers. Uh, You can see over here, this is a Greek yogurt with some honey. Just put in, scoop it, and you'll have the great nutrition. Here's just eggplant, uh, roasted with uh, some uh, tahini and lemon. Matan Gal is the vice president for customer experience for the startup Green Onyx, which has begun selling its new product, Wanna Greens, to individuals and a few high-end restaurants in New York City, as long as they agree to serve it raw. My mission, my uh, job is to make everybody fall in love with uh, our new vegetable. Matan is pitching this new vegetable as a food of the future to investors and a group of journalists covering a climate conference. And to be clear, while it's new to us, Matan says it's a traditional food in Indochina, where you can find it in markets in northern Thailand, Burma, and Laos. So what do you guys think? Uh, Ambrosia. It's delicious. It's like a fresher chia seed with a lighter flavor. If nutritional yeast can take off. I don't know why. Nutritional yeast doesn't even taste that good. This actually tastes good. (laughs) Matan says the Wana Greens duckweed will help feed the world, not with lots of calories, but with nutrients lacking in many Western diets. Tzipi Shoham is the CEO of Green Onyx and the brains behind this new food. She says a lot of people don't eat enough fruits and vegetables, which results in a lack of phytonutrients. Tzipi began her career as a cancer researcher, and that's where she learned the importance of phytonutrients. Her shift in career came after she realized patients actually need better food. But I found myself doing a crazy transition into securing fresh nutrition and the establishment of green onyx. Phytonutrients, or plant-based nutrients, also called phytochemicals, are not necessary for us to survive. But research shows these nutrients can lower the risk of chronic diseases. Shoham says her wana greens have more iron than spinach, more zinc than kale and broccoli, and more potassium than any other leafy green. And, she says, more phytonutrients per calorie than most other fresh vegetables. Thunder Jalili is a professor of nutrition at the University of Utah who researches how phytonutrients impact heart disease. So I showed him a picture of the wana greens and asked him, what does he think about the idea? They look like little insect eggs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so you're basically using those like as a 
additive or condiment or something on whatever it is that you want to eat, right? Exactly. Thunder says phytonutrients are chemicals in plants. And they can be found in either leaves or, you know, fruits or flowers, um, places like that. And plants make these diverse chemical compounds for their own purposes. Like protection against too much UV light or as an antifungal or antioxidant. It turns out when we eat these plants that contain these protective chemicals, we can get similar health benefits. The health benefit is usually pretty mild. These are typically not like acute, quickly occurring benefits, but they kind of accrue over time. The key is regular dietary consumption. Some phytonutrients can help prevent cancer or even slow its progression. Many of these can improve arterial function, um, kind of prevent some of the potential arterial damage that's induced by either high blood glucose levels and diabetes or high blood pressure, things like that. And in turn, that reduces the risk for atherosclerosis and cardiac events. So Wana Greens is making the phytonutrients in duckweed one selling point for their vegetable. But the company also bills itself as a climate solution startup. That's because the greens are grown in a sterile environment. There's no need for pesticides or chemicals, and it's indoors and climate controlled. So the technology can be built anywhere there is electricity and clean water, eliminating waste and the need for carbon-intensive transport. So we can reach to any area in the world, whether it is a cold area like in North America or it is a desert or uh, low-income populations. Wana Greens also have a long shelf life six weeks in the fridge. But most of all, Zippy says it's fun. And kids love it. It's really, it's really a joy to see their reaction when it is on the table. Matan's advice to parents is just don't try to over-explain it at all. When my girls uh, started to use it, I started to use uh, a lot of like fancy phrases, uh, but I stopped. And I just put it on the table. They asked me, what is that? I brought it from work. It's like a vegetable from the future. And then I put it in the lunchbox. They go to school. I have vegetable from the future. <laughs> that story was reported by Susan Phillips. Americans eat a lot of meat about 250 pounds a year on average. But for all the meat we eat, like steaks, pork chops, chicken breasts, there is a lot of meat that we don't eat, like kidneys, livers, hearts, and tongues. A lot of those meat products go to waste. One doctor is on a mission to get people to change their ideas about what animal parts are delicious, one dinner at a time. Alan Yu has more. I'm at a wine bar in South Philadelphia where about 10 people are sitting at the counter for a unique dinner with a unique host. I became interested in food in a very unusual place. It was actually in medical school while dissecting my cadaver. The host Uh, is physician Jonathan Reisman. And on the menu are spleens, hearts and uteruses, not the human kind. Jonathan explained that his interest in animal organ meat started in a perhaps unusual place, anatomy class in medical school. His professor would tell the class what cuts of beef the human muscles correspond to. 
There's a muscle in the back of the abdomen called the psoas major, which corresponds to filet mignon, of course. And on the back of the thigh, we have muscles that help us bend our knee, and that correspond to the top round and the bottom round and the eye of round. And, Some you know, people might never have looked at meat the same way again after that class. But Jonathan was hooked and wanted to learn more about all the animal parts Americans tend not to eat. Then he worked abroad in Russia, Nepal, and India, where he tried oxtail, spleens, and other things he had never eaten before. And he was pleasantly surprised. He says these animal parts taste good and are nutritious. Jonathan has since become an ambassador for organ meats and other unpopular cuts, which he says should not go to waste, especially since many of them are rich in iron, protein, and certain types of vitamins. Every single part of an animal's body is edible. Every single part. He says that sure, people in the U.S. consume some of these parts in sausages or regional foods like scrapple. But in other parts of the world, these organs and cuts are cooked, consumed, and celebrated as such, not hidden away and ground up. To get out his message, Jonathan started working with chefs to host special dinners called Anatomy Eats, like the one I attended. Hi everyone, thanks for coming. I'm Dr. Jonathan Reisman. Call me Jonathan. The event is part dinner and part anatomy class. Philadelphia chef Angie Branca introduces each of the dishes. This is a beef aioda satay marinated in our signature satay sauce. And you're going to love this texture. If you love calamari, you're going to love this. Texture of calamari. And then Jonathan provides the anatomy lessons. Aorta is the largest artery in the body, right? The heart beats blood, specifically the While everyone chews on beef aorta, Jonathan explains why it has that calamari-like texture. So arteries have a much higher pressure than veins because, like, just like in an apartment building, the, the clean water coming in is under pressure while the water flowing out is just under gravity alone. And uh, our bodies work the same way, but because the arterial blood pressure is higher, the artery wall has to be thicker. And so that's why it can be grilled, basically, like what you're eating. It has to have that thick wall to stand up to that high blood pressure. And all of that is washed down with wine, paired specifically with each dish. One of the diners, Philadelphia lawyer Nan Sato, has lived and traveled around the world. And she says it's good to introduce more Americans to the wonders of eating all parts of an animal. I think it really helps you appreciate the animal so much more than just thinking it's something that grows out of a tree or a machine or something. If you lose touch with where food comes from, that leads to unhealthy eating and also a lot of waste. And there is some research to back that up. Some scientists studied the meat supply chain in Germany and found that if people ate more of the organs and bits that are usually treated as waste, it would reduce the carbon footprint of eating meat. Chef Angie Branca says that one of the reasons that Americans may be squeamish about organs and other parts of animals is because of how meat is sold in stores here, all cut up and neatly packaged, which is not the case in her homeland. In Malaysia, when you buy chicken, you don't get to choose, unless you go to a Western-style supermarket, you don't get to choose what part of a chicken you, you're going to buy. You have to buy the whole chicken. 
and we have to learn how to use everything because you paid for it. It's not going to go into the trash can. Angie says at her restaurant, she used to only serve whole fish, not fish fillets. We have several families asked if I can cut off the head so that the kids wouldn't have to look at it, you know, things like that. And we always casually push back and say, you know, this is what it looks like. She says she handles situations like that by showing them how to eat a whole fish. For example, she has told customers that it's perfectly fine to use their hands so they can feel their way around the bones. We basically make them feel comfortable trying. That's the key. We don't embarrass them in any way. Even though organ meat and whole animal eating comes up as a food trend every now and then in the US, it has mostly not caught on. Until recently, Heather Thomason owned Primal Supply Meats, a whole animal butcher shop in Philadelphia. That meant she would receive entire carcasses from slaughterhouses and had to find something to do with the organs that her customers would not typically buy. Her team took the organs and tongues and tails and ground them up to make dog food. It's the you know freshest, beautifully handled, definitely suitable for humans, but we just did not have enough human customers that wanted to eat it. That changed a few years ago. Some health-conscious customers started asking for liver to eat more protein and iron. And eventually, we, there was actually enough humans <laughs> who wanted to eat liver that they would buy all the liver from us and we didn't have any left to make the dog food. Chefs would buy organ meat and heads and tails without any prompting. But that was not usually the case for customers who were not professional cooks. We always had to be constantly promoting and educating customers and maintaining that demand because it would not maintain itself. Heather shut down her business this year. She said costs went up and restaurants were not doing well after the pandemic. She says it was hard to keep the business going because in general, customers do not want to pay more than what large grocery stores charge for meat. No one wants to pay $40 for a ribeye. People don't even want to pay eight or nine dollars a pound for ground beef and realistically it should cost more than that. She says more sustainable meat eating means eating less meat. It also means eating every part of the animal so nothing goes to waste. There is hope for more sustainable eating in the future if we look at the past, says food historian Amy Bentley. She's a professor of nutrition and food studies at New York University. And for her dissertation, she looked at the only time the U.S. government rationed the civilian food supply across the entire country, World War II. The U.S. government rationed sugar, butter, canned food, and meat. Different kinds of rationed foods would have different point values attached to them. And some of the highest point values went to steak, pork chops, roast... The U.S. government encouraged people to make better use of the rest of an animal carcass, like eating organs. They got some scientists together to form the Committee on Food Habits. One of their goals was to promote organ meat to Americans. So they would run these experiments, like in government cafeterias, preparing a dish with organ meats and putting up signage, advertising it, 
as kidney pie, for instance, and how delicious it was and how nutritious. They also created and promoted recipes. Amy says kidney pie was probably one of the better ideas compared to most of the other ones. They were not that appealing. They were hastily developed and kind of clumsy, and it was just like stewed beef heart. Amy says it worked in that by and large, people in the U.S. had food, and there was no widespread famine. On the other hand, as soon as the war was over, most Americans went right back to their habits of eating burgers and roasts. But she says she is optimistic from this bit of World War II history because it shows that for the right cause, Americans could come together to sacrifice something that is central to their idea of what a good life is. I think especially a younger generation is feeling traumatized by climate change and feel helpless and feel like nobody's doing anything and feel like their future is doomed because of this impending climate change. She says that there are certainly people who would be reluctant to give up the meat they enjoy now. But she says climate change is a big enough problem that she hopes it will transcend some of the differences. That story was reported by Alan Yu. You've been listening to Changing Tastes, a special production from The Pulse at WHYY. We're a health and science show. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tung, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our Health Equity Fellow. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. Our producers are Nicole Curry and Lindsay Lazarski. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland family. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. The Commonwealth Fund supports The Pulse and reporting on health equity. The Commonwealth Fund, affordable, quality health care for everyone. Behavioral health reporting on The Pulse is supported by the Thomas Scattergood Behavioral Health Foundation, an organization that is committed to thinking, doing, and supporting innovative approaches in integrated healthcare. WHYY's health and science reporting is supported by a generous grant from Public Health Management Corporation's Public Health Fund. PHMC gladly supports WHYY and its commitment to the production of services that improve our quality of life. NPR brings you the updates you need on the day's biggest headlines. The Senate narrowly passed the debt ceiling bill that will prevent the country from defaulting on its loans. Stories from across the world. Knowing how to forage and to live with the land is integral to Amis culture. And down your block. From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. And you can find all of that and more in your pocket. Download the NPR app today. Hey, it's Aisha Roscoe from NPR's Up First podcast. I'm one of thousands of NPR Network voices coming to you from over 200 local newsrooms across the country. We bring all Americans closer together through free and independent journalism, music, politics, culture, and so much more. The NPR Network. What you hear changes everything. Learn more at npr.org network. 
News is a public service. That's why NPR never puts a paywall in front of our journalism. NPR.org, our free website, promises to stay that way so that you get all of it. Breaking news, pop culture, award-winning journalism, wherever you are. To stay connected, head to NPR.org. 